All right, second, I'm sorry, first John chapter two, verses 28, uh, and then we're going to go on through chapter three, verse 10. Um, last week, I ended by telling you the story of our little dog that was my wife and I's first child, really, uh, and how there was that day where we, we took her to be with my family, my parents, and she became an outside dog for a week while we went on vacation. When we got back, she'd forgotten us. And she forgot she was our child. She thought she was a dog all of a sudden. And that was my way of saying, don't forget who you are. Well, that's not a perfect analogy, I realize, and and for a lot of reasons. But here's a better one. Think about when a parent says to their child, why are you acting this way? I didn't teach you this. You didn't get this from me. We've all said that. If we raised our kids, we've all said that to our kids. Maybe, maybe uh, you walk in on your kids and, and little Bobby has just pulled Susie's hair and Susie is retaliated by throwing her Barbie camper at Bobby and, and you say, hey, 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 that's, this is not the way I taught you to act. Where'd you get this? This didn't come from me. Maybe later on when, when Bobby is uh, pulled over for driving 150 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone and you know Susie uh, wants to wants to get every square inch of her body pierced, and you're like, wait, wait a second, this is not what we taught you. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's not true. I, I knew a, a woman who was very upset because her daughter had been caught bullying other kids at school. And she said to everybody, well, I didn't teach her that. She didn't see, she didn't see that at home. And we all just looked at each other because... We, we saw the way she treated her husband in public, how she belittled him all the time. And I thought, no, she learned that at home. You just don't, some of us aren't self-aware enough to see it. But sometimes it's completely inexplicable. We all know of those families where the mom and the dad are genuine, not perfect, but they're genuinely good people, kind and moral, which is a, a great combination. You just rarely see And then all their kids seem to follow in those footsteps, but there's that one black sheep. My wife's family was that way, or one of my sister's-in-law, who I love, and has, you know, fortunately later in life, uh, got back on the the path of righteousness, but she went through a a real time of rebellion. Many, many families see that, where you say, wait, where is this coming from? You You didn't get that from us. See, we're children of God, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about tonight. And and God is the perfect parent. He is the perfect father. There is literally nothing negative we could learn from him. And he has saved us by his grace alone, which means that if we rebel against him because we're intimidated, well, we shouldn't be, because he's already accepted us in spite of our sin. So... As we, th- as we talk about walking in the light of Christ and not straying away from Him, not falling away uh, from our commitment to Christ, the most important thing we can do is remember who we are. Remember where we came from. Remember what is most important. That's, that's what the people in, that John is writing to, that's what they had seen some of their leaders not do as those leaders had gone off into false teaching and, and a a quasi-gospel that wasn't the, the real thing. So what, is, what does John tell us to do to keep walking in the light, to remember who we are? First of all, he says, keep your eyes on him. So in verse 28, he writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And when I was little, my mom used to, I used to go with my mom to the grocery store uh, every time she went because my mom was a stay-at-home mom. There was nobody, she wasn't going to leave me at home. So whenever she went to HEB, I was with her. Now, I was a daydreamer as a kid. I, my head was in the clouds quite often. And so my mom was very confident. This was, you know, the 1970s, the, the very different time. And so mom didn't keep her eye on me. She knew that if she kept pushing that cart and I didn't follow her, well, I'd catch up eventually. She wasn't worried. Uh, so many was the time that I was sitting there uh, just off in my own little world when suddenly I looked up and realized this woman I was standing next to wasn't my mother. That was a terrifying thought. You know, here I am, you know, standing between the, the, the Count Chocula and the, you know, the, gray, the Cheerios, and suddenly, who is this person? It's not my mother. And this happens so often, I remember developing a strategy for finding her when it happened. And that was you walk to the end of the aisle, you turn left, you walk to the end of the store, looking left as you walked. And so every aisle you pass, you figure eventually you're going to see her down one of those aisles. If you don't see her, you turn around, you walk the opposite way, looking to your right. You think, okay, well, maybe she was on the end when I was passing by, but eventually I always found her. So to abide in Jesus, he says, keep your eyes on me. He says, abide in Jesus. That means keep your eyes on me. That means don't lose sight of me. Unlike me, who would drift off into my own little world, and mom would just keep on shopping while I stayed staring at the cereal or whatever, we should keep our eyes fixed on him. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is far from the only place in scripture that that, uh, that message is spoken, but it's, it's here. He says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. What does he mean by that? I don't think it means that if the moment Jesus returns, we're not consciously focused on him, we're going to miss out on it. That's not what he's saying, because that would deny grace. That would not match up with the rest of Scripture. I think what he's saying is we should be excited about his return. We should, if we think he might come tomorrow, that understanding should fill us with joy and excitement and not dread. In fact, I've learned that's a pretty good spiritual barometer. That's a pretty good way to take your spiritual temperature. How are you doing in your walk with Christ? Just imagine if I knew, and I don't, that Jesus was going to come back tomorrow and I told you, what would your gut reaction be? Would it be, oh, hooray, I, I, I'm so glad. It's, I'm ready to leave this world. I'm ready uh, to see the new earth. I'm ready uh, for his full redemption. That's a good thing. But if, on the other hand, your, your, your reaction is, oh, no, not yet. There's all kinds of things I want to do. Well, then that tells us we're a little too in love with the things of this world. When he says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. What he's saying is when we forget who we are, we tend to give ourselves credit for the good qualities inside of us. We all have good qualities. We all have things that, uh, that are a blessing to the world if we let God use them. But those things didn't come from us. It's sort of like uh, somebody, I don't think they're in here right now, but somebody said, I'm so, a man today said, I'm so jealous of you, you still have, you still have your hair. It's like, well, I guess I do. 
I can't brag about that. I didn't do anything to earn it. I mean, people who, guys who have less hair than me, they, it's not like they didn't try as hard to keep their hair, right? And yet we act like that about our better qualities. Like, we're so proud that, well, I'm just more patient than that guy over there. Uh, I'm just... I'm just more moral than that woman over there. I'm just more, uh, I'm better at, I'm more diligent to be in church than, than that family is. Well, okay, maybe so. If so, give God the thanks and the glory that he has incarnated it, just one aspect of his character in you. Because it didn't come from you, and it didn't come from your parents, and it didn't come from society, it didn't even come from your church, it came from Jesus. It if you have righteousness, any righteousness in you was born of God. It happened when we were born again. So the, the thing is, the more we reflect back on our own conversion, the more we remember how we came to Christ and what we were before then and what we would be without that, the more humble we'll be, the more we'll keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because we'll remember, I'm nothing without Him. I'm nothing without abiding in Christ. So to walk in the light, we keep our eyes fixed on him, but then we also lean into our identity. He, he goes on in verse one of chapter three and says, see what kind of love the father has given to us. That word see, now if you have a King James, it says behold. We just don't say the word behold much anymore, but it's a good word. It's actually a better word for what this scripture says than see. Because literally what John is saying, hey guys, check this out. This is the greatest thing. You're going to love this. John says, behold, can you believe this? What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life. Actually, I guess I am. But uh, I have no power to make you. I'm just saying it wouldn't hurt anybody in this room to memorize those three verses. That's some beautiful stuff right there. So let me tell you why. First of all, again, behold, check this out. See what manner of love the Father has given to us. Again, I, I call upon the, the, old, the, the King James because King James says it this way. The love the Father has lavished upon us. That's very descriptive. And I think that's important for us to realize how God went over and above so, so think of it this way. God is this righteous judge, the, the most righteous man in town, the richest man in town. He runs everything and deservedly so. We are a street kid who does nothing but steal for his food and for his entertainment every single day. That's it. That's who we are. God doesn't just look down and say, you know what? I forgive you for being the way you are. You can't help it. You, you are that way and it's not your fault. And therefore, I, I refuse to punish you, throw you in jail or, you know, hang you by your neck. You, you're forgiven. God doesn't just do that. God lavishes love upon us. He adopts us into his family. He cleans us up and gives us a, a room in his mansion. He, he, he gives us his name. He, he 
think about if that story was real. If if a, the richest man in town did that for the, the poorest, most wretched street kid in town, his friends would think he was nuts. They, they'd say, what's the matter with Mr. So-and-so? He's lost his mind. And that's the point John is making. God, God goes above and beyond what human kindness would demand. He lavishes his love upon us. So we need to remember that. We need to remember, first of all, that we're a child of God. That's leaning into your identity. It's remembering who you are, that you are adopted into his family. Now, now two things about that. Before I move on, there's three more uh, aspects to our identity I want to point out. But we all have a hard time with that part of our identity for one of two reasons, okay? Some of us have a hard time seeing ourselves as loved, Maybe you are that kind of person who is constantly aware of your own sin and your own failures and your own lack of righteousness. And so you're like, well, I know the Bible says that I'm forgiven and I, I believe it. But the idea that, I, that God sees me as his precious child, well, maybe that person over there, but not me. Uh, at best, I'm, I'm out in a shed in the back. No, you are his child and he loves you. He loves you as much as he loves the most self-sacrificing, righteous missionary you can name. He loves you, and he couldn't possibly love you more. But then there are other people who have a hard time with that identity for an opposite reason. They have a hard time seeing themselves as the street kid who's been redeemed. They sort of feel like, well, you know, I was born into this. I, I, I deserve this spot. That's not good either. That's not leaning into your identity. You have to embrace both sides of that aspect of being the child of God. You have, to, you have to realize I am fully loved like I've never been loved before, like I'll never be loved again, but I didn't deserve a bit of it, and I never will. So lean into your identity. You're, you're not only perfectly loved, but you're also a walking billboard for grace. The world looks at you and says, oh, well, if the Lord can love them, then he can love me. Uh, then the second aspect of our identity we need to lean into is this idea that we're misunderstood by the world. As he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now listen, I appreciate the work that is done by certain Christian organizations to uh, safeguard religious liberty in our country. That's a precious thing we have that very, very few people in the history of humanity have had or have even today. Okay? But... We as Christians need to understand something. We are not, and have never been, and perhaps never will be, persecuted for our faith. We're so sensitive, and we're so afraid of losing those freedoms that sometimes we get, we exaggerate the threat, is what I'd say. And so what we take is, when, when we're marginalized, when we're mocked, when we're ridiculed, when we look around and realize, oh, well, the people holding all the cards think differently than I do. We interpret that as persecution when actually that's just what Jesus said life would be like on earth. He said it would be hard. He said people wouldn't understand you. He said people would misinterpret your motivations and would, would uh, project their assumptions upon you even though they weren't true. And you will be falsely accused and you will be uh, ridiculed in many ways. That's part of life on earth. Jesus, in fact, said we should rejoice when that happens. Now, I, I can't say that I've gotten there yet. 
But that should be our response. Instead of anger, it should be rejoicing that, uh, number one, God's word is proved true. But number two, that God is going to use this. God's going to bless us for whatever we endure for his name. And God's going to use our grace, acting like children of God in a world that despises us, use our grace, our mercy, our integrity, our compassion, our kindness to show the world that they can be ashamed of how they've treated us. That's actually how we fight back. We make them ashamed of what they've done through kindness. We heap burning coals on their heads. Then third, we lean into the identity that says, I am destined for glory. He says, when he, I love this. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. A lot of people don't seem to realize that's what salvation is. Uh, Instead, they see salvation as this transaction where you say, okay, I believe this set of doctrines. Therefore, when I die, I go to heaven. Actually, salvation is something that's supposed to start the minute you believe. Eternal life starts the minute you believe. You are supposed to, he didn't just die to spare us from eternal punishment, to, but to spare us from ourselves, to make us like himself. And here's another good barometer of your spiritual state. When John says, someday you'll be just like him and you will see him as he is. Does that fill you with excitement? If that's all you knew about heaven, would that be enough to make you excited? Or would you say, yeah, but is there going to be football? Am I going to be able to play golf? Can I, can I still eat bluebell? You know, when you get right down to it, those two truths I spoke earlier, you're going to be just like him and you will see him as he is, ought to, make you, ought to be good enough that we should say, none of that other stuff really matters. I'll just trust God with that. Because I guarantee you, we won't be disappointed. That's a good barometer of your spiritual state. If, again, if you're longing for details about heaven beyond this, if, if you're just not sure if you can be happy, if something you enjoyed on earth isn't going to be there, maybe the things of this world are too important. And it's time to talk to God and say, Lord, I'm just not as in love with you as I should be. Increase the love that I have. And then fourth, lean into our identity means I am living for the future. Because he says everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's an interesting statement because what he's saying is everybody who knows they're going to heaven, everybody who is certain of their eternal destiny wants to be pure. Now you would think logically from a human standpoint, it would be the opposite. If you know you're going to heaven, you would just kick back and say, eh, who cares about righteousness? I don't, my sin's fine. I'm, I know where I'm going. I don't really care how I live now. But that's not true. If we're destined to be like Jesus someday and we're excited about it, we're not going to want to live like sinners now. We're going to want to start living like Jesus now. And, and I'll give you, a, for me, for me, this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Some of y'all know this, I've told you before. Carrie and I had a long engagement because I, I proposed to her in the middle of our sophomore year of college and I knew there was no way her dad was gonna let me marry her until we were graduated. Uh, so we had a long engagement. Why did I do that? Because it wasn't because I had a bunch of money for a ring. You can look at her ring and tell. 
That's not the reason. No, the reason why was she was a member of a, a very large church with a very, very, very large youth group that had then become a very, very large college ministry. And I had gone to that church many times and I'd sat in that college ministry many times. And I saw how many guys were in there who were taller, richer, and better looking than me. And I saw how they looked at her and I was like, okay, I gotta get something on her finger. I, I just, I gotta stake my claim right now. It's church, I can't lie. But here's the thing, long engagement. I didn't then say, okay, you said yes, all right. Well, you know, we're gonna spend the rest of our lives together. I'm gonna be with you every doggone day of my miserable life. So between now and then, I'm gonna do my own thing. If that had been the case, then she would have been very, she would have reasonably concluded that maybe I didn't really want to marry her. Maybe I really wasn't marriage material. The opposite was true. Because I knew who I'd spend the rest of my life with, I wanted the rest of my life to start right now as much as it could. So we spent a lot of time together during those years of engagement. And I've told y'all before, I, I had back then I had the only cool car I've ever had or ever will have is this uh, 86 Camaro silver. It was beautiful. And I beat that thing to death because she lived about 30 miles from the campus. And I'd drive every Friday and every Friday back, every Saturday and every Saturday back, every Sunday and every Sunday back, and sometimes in the week. I mean, I killed that thing on I-45, but it was worth it because I was living for the future. I was excited about who I was going to spend the rest of my life with, and I wanted that to start now. I think you get my point, right? If our destiny is to spend eternity with Jesus, we're going to want that to start right now. We're going to want to live as much as possible in that future reality, and that's the best way to live. That is the best way to live. For anybody who says, yeah, but I don't want to be so heavenly-minded, I'm no earthly good. Number one, I've never met anybody who did. That a lot of people who've been so earthly-minded, they were no good. Number two, the truth is the actual opposite. When you are thinking about the next world, you live better in this world. Because, just to give you one example, if you've got somebody at work who annoys you, if you're this world-minded, your thought is, i got to get away from that guy. I can't spend the rest of my life hanging around with somebody that, that, that annoying. But if your life, if, you're, if, you're, if your thought process is, I'm thinking about the next world, you're thinking, you know, he's going to spend eternity somewhere. I need to be as kind as possible to him. I know it's going to be hard, but I've got to love him like Christ loves me. Don't you, don't you see? Lean into your identity. Live for the future. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Next, if we want to walk in the light. We have to live with both grace and truth. That leads into this last point. Now, now I need to share this story first. Famous preacher of another generation, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, told a story once about his, he had an unbelieving friend. And his friend had two very different parents. So, you know, Dr. Lloyd-Jones would, was trying to lead his friend to Christ, and his friend one day sat, sat him down and said, okay, let me tell you why I am the way I am said, my parents were very different from each other. My dad was the kindest, most joyful, uh, funniest, most enjoyable person you've ever met, but he was a bum. Couldn't hold a job, 
uh, got drunk often, chased women. He was just not a reliable person at all. My mom, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. She was devout. She was moral. She was just check every particular, every, every box you can name for doing the right thing. And yet her, her morality was like a snowflake, he said. A, a snowflake in that it was beautiful, it was perfectly symmetrical, and it was frigid. There was no emotion, there was no warmth, there was no feeling. It was just, I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing the right thing. And he said, you know what? My parents were polar opposites, and I preferred being with my dad. Broke my heart all the time, let me down all the time, but I felt loved. His point was, that's my experience with religion. I know the world's messed up. I know the world is a place of squalor and, and filth and lets me down and hurts me all the time. But my experience with the church is, yeah, they do all these right things, all these good things, but there's no warmth, there's no love. See, what John says in, the last, in these last verses is we need to have both grace and truth. He says in verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if you, if you take out verse 10 and you just read verses 4 through 9, and if you don't read any of the rest of the Bible, you might, you might conclude, especially verse 6 and verse 9, that salvation for a Christian is the end of all sin in their life. And therefore, if there's any sin left in me, I must not be saved. But then you would have to reckon with chapter 1, verse 8. Remember? We studied that the first week uh, of this study. Ver chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John is saying everybody sins. Everybody except Jesus has sin in their hearts, and they need to be made right with God. Yet, so how can John, uh, a chapter later, say, If you keep on sinning, then you're not of God. How do you, how do you solve that tension? Here's, here's how I do it. Remember, Salvation isn't just a desire to escape hell, it's, it's a desire to be transformed. When you're truly saved, you're not just saying, I want to make sure that I don't burn for all eternity, therefore I'm going to pray this prayer. That's not real salvation. That's just a transaction that somebody makes because they think you're supposed to. Real salvation is when you come to the end of yourself. You confess your sins before God and you say, I, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm tired of every, every time I've had my hand on the steering wheel, I've, I've gone in the wrong direction. I've, I've plunged into the depths of despair. I am giving my life to you, Jesus. That's salvation. So to return uh, to the analogy of the street kid, 
that I talked about earlier. If you come into the new, this new family, the, the daddy adopts you and, and you've got all these new siblings and you've got nice clothes and a nice place to sleep and good food, but every night after the family has gone to bed, you sneak out and you go roam the streets again with your old buddies and you break into stores and you beat up people and you do all the things you did before. Has anything really changed in your life? No, you're, you're just using that family to get out of trouble. You're not really a new person. You're just using that family. But on the other hand, if your experience as that former street kid is, man, I really want to be like my new siblings, but I'm having a hard time because this isn't the way I was raised. I keep messing up. I keep, I keep saying bad words. They don't talk like that in this family, but these bad words keep coming out of my mouth. Um, I, I keep getting mad at my brother and sister or stealing their toys or whatever. I feel terrible, but that's just, I'm, I'm having a hard time. That's salvation. That's, that's the process of you becoming acquainted with your new family, conforming to them, learning to walk the way they walk. It just doesn't happen overnight. That's the process of salvation, sanctification that you're a part of. And that's what John is talking about. He's saying, if you're really saved, you're not going to enjoy sinning anymore. It's not going to be your pattern of life. It's not going to be the way things are. You're going to look at every sin in your life from then on and say, this isn't me. This is who I used to be. So I need to get rid of it so I can start living like the me I am now. And if that, if that determination isn't in your heart, even if it's frustrated sometimes, even if you fail, if that, frustra- if that determination isn't in your heart, then you need to ask yourself, have I truly come to Christ? But that sense of godly sorrow. See, this is, this is why I said at the beginning of this study, the wrong people doubt their salvation. Whenever I've met a Christian who says, I'm just having trouble believing that, that I'm really saved, it's always because they're so aware of their own sinfulness. And I want to say, man, if you're that sorrowful over your sins, I guarantee you, you're saved. Do you believe Christ can forgive you? Absolutely. But you think you're a miserable sinner? Yes, I do. You're saved. It's the people who say, well, of course Jesus loves me. Who wouldn't? Those are the ones I worry about. But they're never the ones who doubt their salvation. So, so verse 10 has the challenge for all of us. And that's, this is where I get the, why I said we need to live with both grace and truth. Because after all these verses talking about how we need to be righteous, he then says, this is how you know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, but also whoever doesn't love his brother is not of God. Grace and truth, truth and grace. So in the analogy, in the example of Martin Lloyd-Jones' friend, he had a a dad who was a lovable bum, a mother who was an ice-cold religious moral person. If we should strive to be the best of both of those. We should be like that dad without the moral failures. We should be like that mom without the coldness. John 1, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, says, We beheld his glory, glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, let's be honest. I don't, I'm not asking anybody to raise their hand or testify about themselves, but all of us lean to one of those or the other. Some of us, we're just drawn toward that that righteousness aspect, that that aspect of truth. We're good at keeping rules. We're good at spotting sin in ourselves and in others. Some of us are drawn toward that aspect of grace. 
and we're, we're, we yearn to forgive. We just have this, this kindness about us that, that can't hold on to a grudge. And what John is saying is you need both. You need both. Don't, don't come in the middle. Don't lessen either one of them. But grace and truth is what it means to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. So know yourself. Know, know which one you have a harder time with and strive toward it. And know who you are in Christ. You are a, a child of God. You are, you are misunderstood by the world. You're destined for glory. You're living for the future. Live into that identity and you'll walk in the light of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these things that we study are not just academic. This is our reality and it's amazing. Those of us who've been Christians a long time, maybe we've forgotten how amazing it is, but it, it is. Remind us, O oh Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation so that we would rejoice in it, so that we would live it out, and so that we would share it with those who don't know about it. I pray, Lord, that we would live in that hope, uh, walk in, a, in the anticipation of what our ultimate future will be, that we would make ourselves pure because we want to live that way right now. And Lord, help us to walk in both grace and truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.